the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I appreciate it. Today, I'm talking to Tyler Gillespie. It was a wide-ranging interview because Tyler has had a uh, wide-ranging uh, career so far. This is an interesting one. So like me, Tyler is also uh, very focused on the productized service model, and he has built and run and grown and exited and also acquired different productized services businesses over the years. And so we kind of we got the whole story there. It was, a, it was an interesting one. It was fun because one of those businesses that, that he has run is somewhat similar to my audience ops business and, and focusing on like the blog content space. And so we were able to kind of compare notes there for that section of the interview. That was fun. But yeah, a lot of uh, interesting insight into building a business that is designed to sell, even if you don't intend to sell it someday. That, that, was, that was a really good section of it. So before we head into that, here is the audio from one of my recent YouTube videos where I am answering a reader's question. And if you've got one for me, hit me up. Send me a question over email or over Twitter or anywhere else. I appreciate it. Here you go. How do you productize your service when every project you do is completely different from the next? Probably one of the most common questions that I hear from folks about this. So I'm going to share some of my best advice on that today. Hi there, Brian Castle here. I'm going to answer another uh, reader's question today. It's a really common one. I'm excited to get into this one. Still rocking the quarantine hairdo today. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, I feel like I'm like 10 years younger. (laughs) All right. So Cynthia asked, how do I productize my bookkeeping and business consulting services when every one of my clients has different needs? It's a really good question. You know, when we're coming from, from being a consultant and doing freelance services for all different types of clients, and all different types of projects, it can be hard to wrap your head around, well, how do we make this a more predictable, repeatable, scalable business model, right? Well, I've got three main ideas that you'll want to work out to kind of you know, break through that, that barrier that I see so often. One is to figure out who your best clients are or have been in the past and start to market your business toward them so that you attract more of that best client. And this is not the kind of thing that will happen overnight. It's not like a quick tactic, but it's sort of a a shift both in your mindset in terms of like who you serve and then the actions that you take to, to get in front of more of those people, whether it's changing the way that you market your website, going to different events, doing more content marketing or, or being part of certain communities to reach more of a specific type of person. So now who is your best client? How do you figure that out? Well, I think that out of all the the clients that you work with, you want to consider who have comfortable budgets, the ones who have been easy to communicate with, the ones who consistently see really great results from the type of work that you do. And maybe most importantly, it's the clients that you personally enjoy talking to. You have to see yourself, you know, even if like going to conferences and things are not your thing. And of course, this year in 2020, it's nobody's thing because everybody's on lockdown. But when we all reopen and, and we start you know, networking in person again, could you actually see yourself networking and flying out to a different city to hang out with these people for, for a couple of days? That's a good indicator that it's actually a right fit for you in terms of the, the type of client that you want to focus on serving. So once you have a clear idea on who your best client is and who your business should be serving, the next step is to figure out the highest value problem to solve for that client. And so then that might mean starting to say no to other needs from that client or from other clients. Again, it's not the kind of thing that you would start to just flip the switch overnight, but if you just become aware of this is the problem that we're solving and these other tasks or requests are things that we 
maybe shouldn't be solving. Maybe we will sometimes and sometimes not, but eventually we're going to be focused on this. That's what you want to get to. You know, that can be really tough for any professional, whether you're in bookkeeping or, or accounting, or if you're a designer or developer, because we're used to solving all sorts of problems. We have the skill set. We have the ability to solve many, many different problems for many different clients. And that's the challenge when it comes to, to productizing your services. You sort of have to start to, to pick one key problem to solve and then use your skills and your, your experience to solve it in a really effective way and in a scalable way. So you figured out the, the ideal client, you figured out the, the best problem to solve for them, then you want to really standardize your solution. Now, we all know that there are a hundred different ways to solve the same problem. You can use different approaches, different methodologies, different tools, different strategies. You want to start to standardize that stuff. Not only figure out the best, most effective tools and approach and methods to solve the problem, but also the combination of those things that make it easy to repeat and easy to build into a process that can ultimately be delegated to someone else and, and built into a, a more scalable operation. Even if you intend to do a lot of it yourself, it's, it's still healthy to, to design your business that way. So that's how, you know, over time you can follow those, those tips to, to make your, your projects more predictable and start to really productize your service. Okay, thanks for tuning in to that. As always, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel and actually see the video version of that over on YouTube. We'll include the link in the show notes. But without further ado, here is my conversation with Tyler Gillespie. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Tyler Gillespie. Tyler, how's it going? It's going really well, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me today. So you and I are, you know, we've, we've, we've been sort of operating in pretty similar spaces. I mean, obviously with productized services, but even even the productized services themselves that we've been involved in, in over the years, uh, you know, in sort of like in the content space, but you've jumped around to a bunch of different things. So it's been interesting. I think it'll be cool for us to kind of get your backstory, but maybe like, you know, compare some notes. No, definitely. No, I, I know we've had some parallels in a lot of the stuff we're doing. So it's it's definitely cool to see and, and uh, definitely seeing your stuff from afar, but also yeah, connecting now and getting to know you a little bit more. Yeah, great. Well, before we go into the backstory, I mean, why don't you, uh, so wh where are you based today? Yeah, so definitely interesting location uh, for most, but currently in Medellin, Colombia, uh, South America. And yeah, eventually, essentially got here about seven years ago and kind of made it my, my home base. So majority of the year here and then also Colorado, where I'm originally from. Okay. Wow. Seven years you've been down. Like how often do you go back and forth? Like, do you have a place in Colorado or are you basically in Columbia full-time? Pretty much Columbia full-time. And then when I go back to Colorado, it's staying with family, you know, seeing people. I typically try to go back for the summer, but this year, especially with everything now not being able to fly staying in Colombia pretty much this whole year, most likely. But it's a beautiful place, man. It's amazing. I, I came down originally just kind of starting that nomadic traveling adventure and, you know, began salsa dancing Spanish, met a Colombian girl and uh, yada, yada. Seven years later, I'm still here. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I, I hear so many great things about Colombia. I've been to a few different South American countries and have not made it there yet, but it's definitely on the list. Yeah, it's it's great, man. I think especially now um, with infrastructure, I mean, you know, really, really good. I just I mentioned before we hopped on, I'm at a WeWork right now, and yeah, it's a great place. A lot of nomadic travelers and and uh, business people that are down here actually as well. So great community, um, which has only gotten better over the years, which has been 
pretty awesome. Yeah, very cool. So business-wise, what are you focused on today? Yeah, so got got a couple projects, and uh, the main kind of two um, are uh, productizemyservice.com, which is you know we're both kind of in that kind of productized space where essentially working with you know freelancers, agencies, consultants, and helping them kind of yeah turn their service into a product, something you know really well, and <laughs> and then also Applause Lab, which is a done for you video testimonial service for. Currently, we're pivoting to work mainly with e-commerce companies, um, where we essentially take care of the whole capture process and the video editing to make video testimonials really easy. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've talked to a few different people doing testimonials and case studies, and in some of the recent episodes, and so it's a really interesting space. And we do some sort of like case study kind of stuff with our content at, at Audience Ops, and it's always interesting, especially on that one, because it's one of these you know, categories of productized services that that pops up quite a bit, but everyone is doing it in sort of a different way or positioning it in a different way or focusing on a certain niche. Yep. Yeah. So it's interesting how you're you're going into like the e-commerce space. Yeah. It's it's I've been trying to niche down a little bit and even like our capture process. I've seen some of the stuff you do, which is awesome. And I know I listened to a few episodes, I think Sam Shepler and uh video testimonial and then also I did listen to the one you did was it Joel of Case Study Buddy? Yep. Yeah, that one just came out a couple weeks ago. Yes, those were great. Yeah, yeah. And then and then sort of like working backwards from there, you so what else? There's also proofreading pros, which is like a proofreading service. Yeah, so that one's probably definitely it leans more on like a tech enabled service. Um and that is a that's a fun little project I ended up buying say almost two years ago now. We actually I bought it with the intention with my previous company, which was a content writing service to kind of integrate the proofreading aspect as another service. So it was kind of twofold, one to integrate. And then the second part was to get my feet wet with actually making an acquisition. So made the acquisition, but never integrated it uh, before we sold the business. So I kind of kept that business essentially after we sold it and um, it's still, yeah, it's still going strong. It's it's very automated, a great team of editors. And essentially, it's a Google Doc add-on. So it, you just open your Google Doc. If you've got any content and you can just push find editor and think of it like Uber, it pings all of our editors. And then the first available editor can just go right in, gets permission to your doc and can start editing. Um, so it's really, it's really useful. And uh, yeah. been trying to figure out kind of the best way to kind of position and market that, but it's had some slow growth month over month. But that one's been a fun one and an interesting one as well. Interesting. And so between these different businesses, and, and I mean, before that, as you said, you had the the content service, which you, you sold last year. Yeah. So that one was, that was quite the ride and happy to kind of dive into some of that because I think that process is interesting, could be for a lot of people who are running service businesses. But yeah, it was um, a content business. We ran for about, no, actually close to five years, but in its current form, we pivoted in about three years. Um, yeah, and we sold it last summer to a, a private equity fund. Got it. Yeah, I do want to dig into the story and, and everything. So, in terms of today, I mean, you mentioned that you're doing some consulting with you know folks who are who are into productized services. Yep. Where where are you spending like most of your time? Like, and and also like in regards to proofreading pros and and applause lab. Like, how how involved or not involved are you in the day to day there? Yeah. So I think, I mean, from a macro, it looks like a lot of stuff going on, but um, I think the proofreading pros is is pretty automated. We have a great team in place. That one leverages a lot of software. So 
the whole workflow really is pretty seamless um, where I'm essentially checking in on the team every month. Um, so that business is probably the least time commitment on my end. Um, and then the second least would probably be Applause Lab. I mean, that's one of the newer businesses, but I've got a great team as well that I've worked really hard to build up there. And that one's probably taken a little bit of a hit. That was probably my main focus before the pandemic. And things have just kind of slowed down a little bit just on the marketing front there. So really de- shifted working on ops, building up the team, you know, just kind of also, like I mentioned, we repositioned a lot of things to kind of go after more of an e-com focus because I, wa- I really wanted to kind of niche down with that service. And the e-com customers we did have were just seeing incredible results. So um, it made sense there. And yeah, with everything happening, I just kind of made a shift and and been probably focusing more of my energy with um, the product as my service, kind of creating content, working with different people on a consulting or coaching basis, you know, that have service businesses. So that's for the moment being, and, and maybe probably the next three to six months, probably more of my focus in that area. Got it. Very nice. Yeah. So yeah, let's go back in, in your story. I mean, we talked a little about your 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 move to Colombia, but like, where do you, where do you, uh, you said you, you come from Colorado and how did you kind of start out this, uh, this career, this journey? Yeah, no, great question, man. So yeah, Colorado native, love Colorado, man. It's great. I grew up in a small town outside of Denver, closer to Aspen. And, uh, just every yeah. time I, I go there, like at least once a year and every time I'm in Colorado, I just wish I was there more. Like, <laughs> I, I keep thinking of, of like excuses to move my family there, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it'd be, it would be a good move, man. I've, I've uh, contemplated moving back, you know, in the right time. And luckily I've got, you know, good family and up in the mountains is amazing. But yeah, just growing up there and my family has always been in service-based kind of businesses, more um, physical, like, you know, property management, vacation rentals, real estate. So that's kind of how I originally kind of got kind of tossed into the, to the business world and specifically like service kind of type businesses. So yeah, originally, I mean, was working for a gentleman up there doing vacation rentals, um, renting out a variety of his kind of townhomes. And that's what kind of originally got me started in kind of the online marketing world. And when I was doing that, not a lot of people were leveraging um, online. This was pre-Airbnb. So um, yeah, that's really kind of kickstarted the interest and was playing a lot more doing online marketing and really loved it. And then um, shortly after working with that gentleman, I, I started kind of my own vacation rental company which was very heavily internet marketing based and uh, service driven. What What do you mean? Like, is that like you were an agent or were you buying properties or what was, what was so that? So that, that business specifically was more of a, yeah, essentially we were, we were kind of like, I guess you could think of like a middleman broker, right? Like, you know, I would partner with homeowners in, in that area and then I would do marketing to drive leads. Um, and then when they booked a home, I would get a commission off that. Got it that sale. So that's kind of how that business model was set up. So it was very personal driven. Um, I remember reading the four hour work week, like most of us do. And I was just like, Oh my gosh, like this is actually kind of what I really want to do is travel, move around. And so it was funny about two weeks after reading that book, I just booked a play, a ticket to Costa Rica and, uh, tried to run the, well, with success, ran the business from there, but long term, it just wasn't a great fit because, at the time, technology-wise, and especially relationships in that market, doing real estate and vacation rentals was very relationship-driven, in-person-driven, and you know, so that so that was a much harder business at the time to uh, do remotely. Right. So I ended up kind of transitioning out of that. Was kind of yeah at that stage. 
so you're trying to to get yourself out of this you know heavily like uh relationship based business stuff with real estate i mean you read the four hour work work week as as i did and so many so many other people did around right. that time i mean what were your next steps in terms of like looking for something else and where where did you find any like those like first inroads yeah great question so i i dabbled with some like online stuff after that did a little bit more traveling ended up kind of selling the rest of like the business to my other partner for the vacation rental stuff. And uh, I found this program that was kind of like a digital marketing kind of online program. This was back in 2011 in Santiago, Chile. And it was, the program was called Exosphere. And that was really the, I mean, kind of the kickoff um, that kind of set me on the path, I guess, with really kind of learning online, seeing people actually, you know, make a living online it's different when you kind of hear about it or read the four hour work, work week and then actually do it or meet people doing it. So yeah, I went to that program. It was three months long. Every week they flew in a different instructor and they taught everything from coding to digital marketing to sales to, you know, it was kind of these one week boot camps. So it was a really cool format and uh, met a ton of really cool people. It just kind of opened my eyes to like what was possible at the time. And that I say, I think was probably the catalyst or kind of the big move that kind of made it real enough to just kind of dive full in uh, in the online space. Very cool. So like during this program, I haven't heard of that one. So so you actually went to Chile and, and you were in this three-month program learning a lot. Like, was it like action-based or was it you're really just more like in learning mode, not actually starting something at that point? Yeah, no, great question. So I didn't go with the business. I think there were some people that maybe have st- had things they were working on, uh, but it was definitely more positioned as like a learning. There were, were things people were building things why we were there. But it was more of kind of definitely positioned as like a learning thing. So there's another program that was really popular. And I think they still do it called Startup Chile. And this was kind of it wasn't that Startup Chile like pays you to go down there with your startup and kind of be based there. Um, In this program, we had to pay to go. Yeah, it was amazing, man. It was that was definitely the catalyst for a lot of change. And it was after that program, I I came back on my way back, ended up coming to Columbia and, and kind of officially moving here at that point. Very cool. So what was like your next move, like business-wise? Like, did you have like an idea that you were trying to start or getting into consulting at that point? Or At that point, yeah, I wasn't really sure. I got back to Columbia and was really kind of just playing with a ton of different ideas. And I think it was at that point I was, was doing some consulting, but kind of, I mean, kind of kicked off really from a cafe in Columbia at that point kind of starting doing freelance agency work remotely. This was kind of back when Elance um, was kind of the big marketplace before Upwork. And um, yeah, it was just leveraging, getting um, opportunities on there and working remotely. And it was great because I could make pretty good money, you know, when you look at dollar compared to the Colombian peso um, and do it remotely. What kind of a, what kind of freelance work? I mean, you, you, I guess you built up some like marketing, like online marketing skills, but like, what does that actually look like? What, like, what kind of jobs are you taking for that? Yeah. And no, I think originally it was kind of a variety of different things. I think growing up doing real estate vacation rentals, I think in the service business, I always had like, it wasn't unnatural to me to like know just enough of something, but like outsource it immediately. Um, and not actually do the work, if that makes sense. So I was getting a lot of jobs online, um, whether it was email copywriting or funnel building or content creation. And I would, you know, win these jobs via like sales because I was actually like, what I did was make video proposals. And back then, no one did that. Still to this day, people don't do that that much. 
Yeah. And I would get the job, you know, like nine out of 10 jobs I applied, they would, I would be having conversations, which was just kind of crazy. And, and then I would, you know, just outsource the work to other contractors at that point. It's amazing how valuable that skill is of just being, just being willing to not like, like you said, I mean, doing like a video message, but then just being willing to and eager to get on calls, like sales calls, and then having the, having like the guts to, to just figure it out. And you don't necessarily have to figure out the technical skill, but if you know enough to be able to go find the people with the technical skill. No, hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it's just like, it's like, there are so many opportunities out there yeah. for gigs like that, but so few, such a small percentage of people are actually hungry for, for just doing that, that sort of like sales work. No, hundred percent. And I don't know what, you know, why that came naturally. I think just kind of environment I grew up in to an extent. Um, and just, I think having a little bit of that base, I think that's, that's definitely an advantage when you're doing stuff like that online, because the alternative, a lot of people start obviously when they're freelancing or being consultants, they're, they're doing the work one-to-one, which is like the beginning of some of those service business traps a lot of people fall into. And I think the sooner you can outsource the doing with a mechanism of, of what you're trying to offer, the, the faster you can kind of grow. And, and, uh, so luckily that, yeah, I jumped right to that. So I remember at that point, you know, doing a variety of, of freelance work over a couple months. And I had a buddy who just came down to Columbia and I think I, it was, I forget when after he came down, but I remember selling like a, a $5,000 funnel package to a gentleman, um, online. And, uh, you know, I kind of set it up and I needed a lot of help to, you know, organize and bring some freelancers on. So I, I just asked my buddy if he wanted to join me for this project and what seemingly could be more. Um, and that was kind of uh, my partner at the time. And we kind of created what at that time was called gingerbread marketing, um, <laughs> which was a full-time agency. And if you don't know, I've red hair. So it's kind of like a fun play uh, myself, but we, uh, yeah, that was kind of the kickoff to the agency. And we, both of us both had kind of sales backgrounds and we ended up growing the agency pretty quickly, but also saying yes to everything, which was one of the problems in the first two years. It was, uh, yeah, a lot of headaches. So you kind of learn the, learn the hard way of, of building a business like that. But, you know, at the same time, it was great learning curve, you know, was able to live in Columbia, um, very, you know, comfortably and uh you know learn learn a lot as well so um that was kind of yeah how the kickoff of the original agency kind of started got it and so that that was the agency that eventually turned into into the content like like content productized service exactly yeah so that was we ran that for a couple of years and then we realized it took me i think the third time of reading built to sell to realize like okay like it's funny because in the book he's really talking about how to productize a service even though he doesn't like fully say that. And uh, I was like, man, we've got to just execute this. And I think I read, read it in a Nove- like November, December. Um, I forget the year, but by January, we fully just revamped. We, we pretty much cut all the agency stuff that wasn't just content writing. And we decided just to niche down on just writing essentially blog content or thought leadership type of articles um, as like the only thing. And so like before that, like when you were still in like an agency mode, you were doing content writing, but you were doing other things like funnels and ads and, and emails and stuff. Exactly. Funnels, email, actually email autoresponders. Cause we looked at like what was recurring. 
that we were doing because we were trying to decide like what to focus on. And, and it came down to like, after we cut out web pages, funnels, you know, you know, messing with like email service providers, et cetera. Like it came down to like email autoresponders or blog content as like things that we wanted to, we were picking one of those and we ended up choosing either one actually could have been, I think emails could have been successful as well, but we decided to go with just recurring blog content because yeah, it's something people needed every month. Um, it was something we were able to do fairly, you know, we don't had a great process around customers got a lot of value from it. So that, that was kind of a defining moment when we just decided to kind of fully focus on just one core service offering and, and kind of get rid of everything else. And we also rebranded at that point to content pros. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, obviously I, I run audience ops, which is a somewhat similar, there are some differences, but you know, obviously the, the bulk of what we do is blog content, but I started that business as audience ops. It, it didn't evolve from an agency. And so you went through the transition that so many people are trying to do. And, and, and a lot of people have, have trouble with that, you know, going from saying yes to everything and being a generalist agency to what you did. It sounds like overnight kind of rebranding and, and focusing on, on that. Like how, how did you, aside from like just rebranding the website and, and rewriting the copy, I mean, I guess we sort of understand how that works, but how did it work with your clients? Like, did you have agency clients that you needed to still serve and, and phase out? And then how did you start to introduce, hey, we only do blog content now? Yeah, I think it was a mix of both because I, I think for sure it's definitely not an overnight thing, I think. But with saying that, myself and my partner were, were pretty like risk adverse to making like pretty quick <laughs> chess moves to to better the kind of situation or to end like doing things how we were doing them. So we we did make a pretty abrupt change at the end of that year. I think December to January. It was, you know, I think probably a month of just just rebranding, getting the new site, repositioning. Um, and I think anyone we still had on board, we just kind of phased them out or tried to transition them into our new kind of um, fixed packages of creating content or articles. Um, and I think a handful of them did, some people didn't, uh, but it gave us a lot of like really good insight and focus to just kind of the type of business we really wanted to build. And and that was kind of the beginning of, yeah, just building an asset and, and something that could scale beyond us. Because I think with the agency, like anyone, you go through that whole process and it was just, yeah, it became kind of a nightmare at, at towards the end there where it was just, we had to kind of change it up to kind of get out of that all those service business traps, you know, that so many fall into. Yep. And was there, or is there still a, like a focus on a certain niche or type of business that would need blog content? Yeah, we focused on, we worked with a lot of coaches and consultants. Uh, but to be honest, I think, you know, even with that said, even when you go to the site now, <laughs> which is essentially very similar, I mean, there's not hasn't been much changes from when we still own the business, but um, yeah, we didn't really niche down beyond that, to be honest. Um, we were still fairly broad, which was probably something we could have done even better. But yeah, we we just kind of kept it there, but we just focused down, like we niched down on like what we did really clearly, but then never, you know, fully niched down as far as like our target avatar, to be completely honest. And that was something I think we could have done a lot better at. Yeah. I was also, you know, looking around at like the pricing. Um, I don't know if the pricing has changed since you owned it or, or since the early years, but, you know, it looks like it, the Content Pros is priced quite differently from how I, I did it with audience ops. It looks like it's like a cost per word 
and there are different levels or, you know, you, the, the cost changes as you have different quantities. Can you talk through that a little bit? Like, how did you come up with the pricing and, and um, yeah, any like learnings as, as you went through, like figuring out what to include in the package and, and the price points? Yeah, I think our main goal was when we were yeah deciding just positioning and pricing for that business was we didn't want to be like another content mill. Like, I mean, no offense to Blogmut or, you know, some of these other sites, um, you know, but a lot of places, you know, charging three to eight cents a word is sometimes it's very hard to get, you know, the quality. So we really want to kind of position ourselves as, you know, a little bit higher quality in the market. So um, that was part of kind of how we set ourselves apart a little bit. And then, yeah, we, we kind of priced it based on a per word basis and anchored it to um, where you would get a better rate if you paid up front for, let's say, a quarterly or annual package. So we really try to encourage um, longer term content subscriptions, which was also kind of intentional. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do pricing, but that's kind of how we decided to kind of position it, you know, rather than you know, monthly or getting discounts for the more words you bought. It was more discounts based on how you paid us rather than how many words you bought, if that makes sense. Got it. Got it. Yeah. It's interesting because I've, I mean, I've gone with like the more standard, like SaaS like pricing, where it's just kind of a, a flat fee. We've got like two different tiers to choose from, but it's, it's an ongoing subscription until until they want to cancel, which effectively is a very similar thing. But I guess with the like, did you have like automatic renewals subscriptions or was it like? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So they are signing up for a subscription. It's not like we only want one quarter of content. No, no. Yeah. So everything, everything was subscription based. Yeah. So when they signed up, it was, I mean, that was kind of the goal. I think, you know, although we didn't have like a goal to sell the business right then, after reading, like I said, built to sell the third time, it was like, okay, what can we do to make sure this business is a sellable asset, whether we want to sell it or not? So my partner and I had like a lot of clarity on that. So it was literally, we were just chipping away at like, which ultimately made the business like that much more efficient, that much easier to run. But we kind of took, you know, as a challenge, uh, which was kind of fun to just really do everything we could to build this business that it could run without us. Um, and could be a sellable asset. And one of those things was, yeah, credit cards, recurring revenue, subscriptions, credit cards on file. These are things that investors, you know, if they're going to buy your business, that, you know, makes it a lot more attractive um, as well. For sure. Just a minute to tell you about Productize. If you're sick of the client services treadmill, well, there's a better way, a productized service. That's why I built Productize. It's a private community and training program for people like you and me. We're operating a client services business and we're scaling it up using the productized service model. Join our private Slack, our private forum, and get matched into your own small mastermind group with other members. Give and get honest, constructive feedback to grow your productized service business this year. Plus, get access to my productized course, which gives you everything that you need to start, grow, and systematically build your productized service business. The best part about becoming a member, no ongoing subscription. Purchase once and you get lifetime access to everything. Go to productizecommunity.com for all the details. And right now you can get 10% off by using this special URL, productizecommunity.com slash podcast.
I tell people all the time, like even if you don't think that you would ever sell your business, it, it's always still a healthy choice to design and build and structure your business as if you might sell it someday. Like it's it's just going to make it a better business to run anyway, and it gives you that that asset. No, hundred percent. And honestly, that's ended up what, what ended up happening. <laughs> I think we we ended up getting the business where it was really amazing team, amazing team of writers. Well, I also wanted to ask you about that about about yeah. the team. I mean, before we get into the acquisition, so yeah, like, can you tell me a little bit more about how how the team there is structured? Uh, like where where did you find like where are people based? How many people on the team? What were the different roles? That sort of thing. Yeah, we had a core. I mean, it was all contract based. We had a small, like, full time team, which included kind of our customer success or project manager. We had an in house um, editor in chief. And we also had kind of a tech person to help us. And then, really, the majority of the team was writers. We had about 130 freelance writers um, that covered, if you could imagine them being batched into like their core specialties as far as like tagged, so they could, you know, write for a variety of different industries or we could. And yeah, I mean, that was really the core team, 100% remote. And yeah, I mean, that that's kind of what the team looked like. Yeah, very cool. It's like a very different structure than, than audience apps. We're, we're a much smaller team. And, and then I'm, I'm kind of curious about like the personal attention that the individual writers and the, and the manager have with the clients. Like, are there phone calls involved? Or is it mostly like over email? And, and how does like the feedback loop work? Yeah, so we did have yeah, typically a customer would sign up, have a sales call, then would be connected with our customer success manager, and and they would have kind of a dedicated one-to-one customer success manager that um, is helping them, you know, with all their content, SEO strategy. Really, we focused on the execution of just trying to write really high-quality work. So our customers would come to us most cases with their SEO strategy, their um, ideas of exactly kind of what they were, you know, looking to get written. And then our team would just really execute on their behalf. And um, most of the conversations would all stay with the customer success manager. And then if there were potential edits or revisions, um, the writer would be brought in to, you know, work or fix anything that would be needed. So that's kind of how we had it set up. Got it. Yeah, very cool. I mean, like one of the questions I get all the time with audience ops, I, it might be just sort of like the nature of of our market where we have we work with a lot of SaaS companies and B2B and some of them are... A little bit more technical and and um so the the big question that we always get is like how can we get our team especially the writers to learn like these technical niche products niche industries and to be able to write confidently for them i'm curious like how did you guys sort of like attack that problem like when you're with especially like ghostwriting and somebody else's voice you know yeah no i think it's it's definitely not easy i think that's that i think that's a very common concern i think we just we try to really focus on really good training bringing in people and like we were, I mean, I think really extremely organized with like the writers, what their specialty was, what they were good at. And I think the technical stuff we did, we did have a few handful of customers that we did like more technical writing, but um, if there was interviews that need to be had, I think there were some ways we, we kind of worked to get around that as well. I think, as you know, like setting expectations as well, it's not, you know, we're not going to write in your voice overnight. So it's one of those things that, you know, giving the proper expectation to like lead up to, you know, capturing your voice and each piece gets better and better. And I think that helped us as well to, with that argument or that concern. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it, it's, it's funny to hear you say that because that's something I completely know 
that argument <laughs> and and it's setting that expectation that I didn't know that early on in audience apps. I, I, yeah. I that probably that I, I probably became aware of that maybe a year or, or two in. And that's because the the early value proposition that I was thinking about was like, oh, it's so easy. You're this SaaS company, just hand off your content to us and you can be completely hands off and we'll do it for you. But it it has evolved, at least in the way that I try to set the expectation to yes, we're gonna handle all of the legwork and creation and production process for you, but we do need your input, especially heavier early on. And we're going to get better over time, you know? No, hundred percent. Yeah. And that has helped so much in setting that expectation because I learned that customers want to invest their time early on to make sure that we work well, and then they're going to stick with us a long time, you know? Oh, I love that. Yeah. that makes total sense. Yeah. I think it's, I don't know if it came native, like naturally to us either, but it was, that was definitely something we we ironed out and I think got pretty good at, you know, over time. And I think everything, yeah, just improved and got better and better the more we kind of iron those things out, you know. So how did the, uh, how did the acquisition come about? Like what were the very first seeds of, of like, did you start to seek options for, for exiting the business or did something just kind of come, come unexpectedly? What, how did that start? Yeah, great question. Like I said, it wasn't something we, we planned for. And I think that's the thing, like building a business that you can, sell even if you don't want to because oftentimes you know unless you're like really lucky or just you know exactly you're going to sell you don't know when that could happen especially when you have a business partner i mean yeah it just came to the point i think we both wanted to kind of do something new and different especially when we got the business to like an hour of month a month of working (laughs) you have all this free time on your hands so you're you're trying different things and yeah, he kind of originally spearheaded it and just said, hey, I'm, you know, we maybe want to do something else. And that kind of kicked the domino off of like, okay, well, let's just see like what what is the business worth? Um, and we talked to a few brokerages and then um, we were like, oh, wow, this was, it's worth a lot more than we originally thought. Let's, let's listen, just see if anyone's interested. And then and next thing you know, we've, we've have multiple offers. And I think when we decided to list it to when we actually closed, it was about less than 60 days. Um, which is pretty fast. Oh, wow. That is fast. You know, and when you look at, yeah, typical timeline of businesses selling. But yeah, I mean, everything we were able to do kind of leading up to it, you know, those things you try to maximize value, I think all um, led to like us getting a quick sale um, at, you know, a high multiple. So I think, you know, those were, I mean, it, it was a really amazing learning experience, to be honest. So I'm a lot of the stuff I'm trying to like now share with people to be proactive with, you know, if you have a service business, here's the things you need to start thinking about to get the most value, you know, because you never know when you might want to sell, you know, your business. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's what I wanted to get into a little bit. So, so as you started listing it for, for sale, you said that you got multiple offers. I mean, what were the, what were sort of like the pros and not, not cons, but like, the questions or the hard objections that buyers needed to get over to feel comfortable with taking over the, a, a service-based business like this? Yeah, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more generally because I can't share all the details with that business and the sale. But the yeah, I think mainly when someone's looking to buy your business, it's they're looking at like how risky it's going to be to take over. So one of the things we talked about earlier is, you know, is, you know, when they buy it, are all your customers going to leave? Do you have contracts? Is, are people on recurring subscriptions? Um, so that was a big thing that drove a lot of, I think, value um, and something that is really important to look at is, you know, the structure of how you're working with people. So that's definitely a big one. Um, one is also, you know, your team, um, especially in a service business. Most people might not think of it like this, but your 
one of your biggest assets is the team, whether they're contractors or employees, right? Because that's a big part of what a service business is. You're scaling people and you know technology or software, leveraging software technology. So so that was that was a big one as well. Do you have contracts with these employees or subcontractors and you know, because that's one thing as well. They don't want anyone to leave or the team to disperse um, when someone buys your business, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And did you have to, I would assume that you had to keep it sort of quiet among your team until the very end before, you know, around closing. Is that right? Yeah, no, it was It was definitely one, one of those situations that you couldn't, uh, I mean, there were still some unknowns, you know, I think when you're selling a business, sometimes you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't know, know if it's going to happen. Yeah. If it's going to happen until the closing day. So. It's hard because yeah, you're in a balancing act of do I tell, do I share, just everything being transparent, do I just wait in case it doesn't go through? So that's that's definitely interesting as well. I think that was definitely our case as well, just trying to like navigate that a little bit. But um, luckily, we had a really awesome team, and um, they're all still working there to this day, actually, and they're super happy. So it's it ended up working out a lot. I think another thing to consider too is just the amount of time you're working in the business. Because um, I think a lot of owners do end up spending more time than they think. So when someone's looking to buy your business, you know that's also something they're they're hedging against. Against you know as far as or evaluating you know how much time is the owner spending in the business, and is there enough money to pay someone to take that over? Um, because there's that handoff period, right? And if you're working a lot in the business, you know you might actually get tied into what they call like an earnout, where you have to stay in the business for a certain amount of time to transition it over. Um, to the new owner. So that's definitely something as well to to kind of think about, especially with service businesses, that's not uncommon. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How did you feel about the whole transition? Like, did, did that go smoothly? Did, did, and how long did it take for you to fully like hand over the reins to, to the new owner? Yeah, you know, I think back to kind of just, I think since we had like the team just fully running everything, we were honestly were able to hand everything over in less than a month, you know, as far as our involvement, you know, we were available, you know, I think for calls and and what we ended up working out was, you know, if they needed anything, but it was actually pretty minimal, um, which was really awesome. Because um, I think the last thing when you sell a business, you're you're kind of checking out mentally. And and I think that's always the concern, especially with an earnout, unless you do an earnout with someone that's, you know, tied to future revenue, because you want to keep them motivated in the business, right? You know, their payout tied to kind of the revenue of the business over that earnout period. But for us, yeah, no, it was, it was very smooth. The owners came in and you know, took it over very smoothly and minimal questions. And I think we had a lot, you know, processes documented team kind of running the business already. We were very minimally involved. So um, I think those things, if you're, you were going to take kind of some takeaways of things like to ensure that those are things you're implementing in your service business, then those really, really help as well during like a transition like that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't know if you're able to share like any any like figures or, you know, size of the deal? So that that's the question. But I'm, I'm also sort of just curious, like, <laughs> how significant was this for you? And, and what was your outlook post, you know, post exit? Did you plan on taking time off? Did, did you, were you looking for the, like the next thing immediately? Yeah, yeah. Well, I can talk a little bit on it. I like the exact numbers. I can't actually because the owners did specifically kind of mention that we'd not talk about that. So okay, you know, maybe in the future, <laughs> you know, after the kind of non-competes up and um, our agreement with them. But yeah, I think one thing I will touch on though is there is a period of transition. I think when you go from working on something, and I don't know if you felt this when you, I know you sold restaurant engine between that, your next thing, 
Um, there is this lull, I think at some level that you go from working a ton to now doing nothing or having this income now having, you know, a bunch of money and then no income, you know, it's definitely like a mental, interesting kind of mental battle and air, like kind of process to go through. I probably leveraged, um, which I'm actually very thankful for. I kind of call this like, if you're going to sell, like maybe have something lined up that you can transition to, even if you don't want to do it just to kind of put your energy and time into. Um, and I guess that for me was proofreading pros. So, you know, that few months after. Right. Cause you had acquired that before the exit. Exactly. Yeah. So I had that business. So that was kind of naturally something I could put that energy into because I think I would have gone a little crazy just to go from selling the business to then doing nothing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about that who've sold businesses and I think that's, that's very common. Um, there's a lot of people that get to very depressed after they sell their business. Um, and there's like this whole thing. So it's, I think that's something real. And so I think having kind of that baton, I call it to kind of transition into something else, no matter what it is, or just to put your energy into is, is, uh, is actually really important. I don't know. Did you kind of have that with, when you sold restaurant engine at all? Can you relate to that? There was definitely an overlap. Uh, it was, it was only like two or three months of overlap with audience ops and restaurant engine. So I didn't really have much of a, okay. Yeah. I didn't really have like much of a period of time where I was doing nothing, but it was a crazy transition year because like you, I was working with a broker to sell a restaurant engine. And so I knew that, well, I didn't know that a deal was going to happen, but I knew I was pursuing deals Yeah, (laughs) and, and it actually took a bit longer than like it probably took three or four months from the time I listed to the time we closed because there was one deal that fell through and then another one came along. So there was this period of time where we were sort of going through due diligence and I felt fairly confident that it was going to close. And that's that's where I started to, it was pretty stressful actually, because I was, it was, a, for me, it was a somewhat stressful due diligence process. Yeah. At the, while I was basically starting audience ops and the audience ops startup was kind of exciting because it was getting off the ground really quickly. And, and I was, you know, growing MRR way faster than I did with restaurant engines. That was, that was kind of exciting, nice. but doing it at the same time. And, and then that I think shortly, like a month or two after close on Restaurant Engine, we packed up and sold our condo and drove around the country in different Airbnbs for <laughs> most of the next year while I was starting up Audience Ops. So that was, I, remember, I remember you mentioned that. And I, was, I was curious if that was the timeline because, yeah, that definitely is, uh, is quite a bit. So I didn't know you, you had actually started Audience Ops before Restaurant Engine sold, what what if Restaurant Engine didn't sell? Would you have just kept both businesses? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think I started it like when we were far enough down the path that I was pretty sure it was going to sell. Yeah, like, for sure. Like one way or the other, you know, because I was also, I, there was also a period of time there where I was, I wasn't sure that I was going to be audience ops. I, I kind of jumped around to three or four different ideas and and like mm. dipped my toe in the water for a couple of weeks on each one until until I landed on audience ops and and felt like this would be the fastest best way to launch an income stream especially that aligns with my network and audience and everything and so that made the most sense man that's awesome yeah so that was kind of your baton in a way uh, or transition from the sale to something new so that that's really awesome yeah but it's interesting because it's like I you know I still own and run audience ops today but it is very, very minimal in my time. Um, and it's been that way for like the last year or two. 
well, more, more than that, like two or three years, I've been pretty much out of the day-to-day. But 2018 felt more like that that void. <laughs> you know, even though I still run audience ops, it's like that that's when I started to reinvest like all of my free time into new ideas, like which which ultimately led to process kit. Yeah. But like I was able to spend that whole year like learning to code, you know, full time. Wow. And so I I guess that that was nice to to have that like sustain. It still is nice today um to have the sustainable income. I'm I'm sure as as you know, you know, from your current projects here. Yeah, no. Like to just have these different in- income streams to like fund your time to explore other ideas, you know. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a I'm a luxury. Um and it's really really nice. So super grateful for that and yeah, just kind of building those up is, is I think, really good, really smart um, over the long term as well. Yeah. So it was after the acquisition, after the exit that you started uh, Applause Lab. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So there was that little lull transition period. I was kind of playing with proofreading pros. But to be completely honest, it was kind of one of those things that I had in, the intention of integrating it into content pros. And it just, I'm not an editor. To be completely honest, and it was just kind of like hard for me to like the crossover in my strengths and if I was going to dive in and create content. And so I've got some people doing that, um, which is awesome. But um, I I kind of was eager to maybe jump into something else. And there was a period I looked at, you know, was was looking at acquiring something else, but just couldn't find anything at that time. Um, And then ended up, yeah, launching Applause Lab which was something I wish we had at Content Pros, you know, for capturing video testimonials in a really easy way. And so that was a really, really fun. It still is a really fun project to, to work on. And, and it's still very young. It's not even a year old. Yet, okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, how, how long have you been on this one? About the end. Yeah. End of 2019 launched it. So what, how does, uh, how does Applause Lab basically work? Like what makes it unique and what is, uh, what's kind of like the package or the value proposition? Yeah, so we ended up tying into this API and leveraging this technology called asynchronous video capture. So um, what happens, one of the problems when you're requesting video testimonials is one, it's really expensive to send a video crew out, right? It's just a different, you know, not every business can afford that kind of like a testimonial hero style, um, which is awesome if you can. Um, and the other option is maybe do virtual interviews via Zoom, record the interviews, but then you're also internet issues, bandwidth, scheduling conflicts. So we started doing uh, virtual video interviews like that while we kind of built out the tech aspect. And our goal with the tech aspect was essentially if let's just say audience ops wanted to do video testimonials with us, we would go over a list of questions that are kind of proven to capture, you know, the best type of answers that are going to help you close more business. We'll revise those with you. Then we'll actually record them with a spokesperson on our team. And we'll take all those videos and we'll put it into our software. And the software essentially, imagine someone holding your hand through eight to 10 questions. So you just send your customers a link. They open it. It asks the first question. You can literally record, re-record your answer. And then it it takes you to the next question, asks you, and then you can record your answer and it takes you to the next question, et cetera. And then when all the footage is done, when you're finished, it gets sent to our video editing team to actually produce, edit into a branded video testimonial. So I think what makes us unique is we avoid the back and forth of needing to schedule. They're very affordable. They're easy to send. So we're trying to be as frictionless as possible. Um, And one thing too is there's other software out there you might be familiar with like Boast or there's some other software where you just send someone a link and just say, hey, record your video. 
But the problem is when someone isn't guided with the right questions, the answers you get most likely aren't going to be usable. Right. So in most cases, we're able to capture eight to 12 minutes of footage and we're sending you a 90 to 120 second video. And then we have all this other footage too. So we're not only creating like the initial video testimonial, but some customers might say, hey, give me this section here. I want to run this as a video ad on Instagram. And so we have a couple upsells and some for some expansion revenue that our video editing team can very easily just edit different sections or combine videos or do some cool stuff like that for, let's say, social media or someone wants to run ads. And um, so we have some different outputs that we can kind of export to as well. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of, I think, what makes it kind of unique compared to maybe other products out there. And it's it's very hands-off as well, which which makes it easy for customers as well. Yeah, nice. So so is the software custom? Like you you, you built it and it's basically built on top of that? Um, so we built on top of like an API of like a software that kind of already existed. And then we've kind of modified and, and built kind of our own kind of capture process on top of it. Got it. Very nice. Yeah, I love that model. That that sounds that sounds really cool. And so it's basically they're they're paying per testimonial. Exactly. So the business model again, I'm trying to work in like the subscription model, and it's been working really well. Is a company would buy, let's say, four, eight, or twelve a year, and they have all the orders in their account, and then they're able to send that link out to their customers as they need, or integrate it into their autoresponder at certain points in the customer journey, and then as we get videos, we'll just produce them automatically. So um, that's kind of how it's set up. Very nice. Well, uh, well, Tyler, it's been it's been quite a journey for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we covered quite a bit, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really uh, really interesting, really inspiring. So um, so where can folks can where can folks kind of you know connect with you today? Yeah, well, I think honestly, you can check out applauselab.com if you'd like. But the probably the best place to to follow me is just productizemyservice.com. I'm pretty active on there, creating content, and uh, yeah, you can find me there and. And uh, it's probably the best place. Very cool. Well, uh, yeah, Tyler, it was great, great chatting with you. And uh, yeah, this was a good one. Thanks. Hey, thank you. All right. Did that give you something to think about? If it did, let me know on Twitter. I'm at CastJam. If you want to find show notes on this or any of the other episodes or my weekly newsletter with new content, head over to productizeandscale.com. Now, if you haven't already, a five-star review in iTunes, that would go a long way to helping other folks find the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.